Welcome to the Fraudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and this month we're going to look deeper into an issue that has dominated news headlines and frustrated hundreds of thousands of identity crime victims. I'm talking about the unprecedented levels of identity fraud that we've seen during the pandemic as people applied for various government benefits, from unemployment benefits to small business loans. So let's start with some good news. For the first time since reports of unemployment identity fraud emerged in early 2020, the number of fraud cases have started to steadily decline. That started in May. The number of fraudulent stimulus cases linked to identity fraud and small business administration loans are also now dropping a little each month. Ironically, June was the month when the number of unemployment fraud cases reported to the ITRC in 2021 surpassed all of those reported in 2020. We've talked a lot in earlier episodes of this podcast about how the unemployment identity fraud occurred and the impact on people denied benefits as a result of that, but we haven't really focused much on what we've learned about what happened after the money was stolen. Where did it go? And what other actions can we now take to prevent more fraud in the future based on what we've learned? Well, helping us to explore the murky world of identity fraud is the ITRC's CEO, Eva Velasquez, and Naftali Harris, co-founder and CEO of Centilink, a company that helps businesses reduce identity-related fraud. So thanks to both of you for being here today. Happy to be here, James. Thank you. So, Naftali, tell us exactly what Centilink does. I mean, it sounds great that you're helping people, you know, with identity-related fraud, but what does that actually mean? Uh, well, first off, James, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you and to Eva. Centilink stops fraud for banks, lenders, and other financial institutions. And the way it works is before a financial institution will open up an account in somebody's name, they first send the information over to us, and we figure out, is this actually the person that uh, – they claim to be, or is this a stolen identity or even a synthetic identity or a person that doesn't exist? And if we assess that this is not actually uh, the person that they say they are, if this is a case of ID theft, uh, we'll tell the financial institution so they don't go and open an account uh, in the name of a uh, identity theft victim or in the name of someone that doesn't actually exist. Eva, we know that the, 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 the rate of unemployment fraud has been high. We know the rate of just identity crimes and identity fraud is high. How has that translated into impacts on individuals um, that we've seen at the ITRC? You know, James, we know that the impacts are, they're immediate, they're devastating, and then there are these long-term, these like tentacles that just keep going. And I think it's challenging for the general public to understand just how devastating this is because they, they tend to liken it to, well, um, it wasn't it, your money in the bank that was uh, compromised or, you know, a credit card or your own financial information, although it's your identity credentials. So how bad could this be? But when we're talking about things like these relief programs that are available to people at their time of need when they need it the most and they can't use them, then there are these downstream effects. And, you know, we have our aftermath report where we saw people, large percentages of people, 40% unable to pay their routine bills. 
Uh, 14% were evicted for non-payment of rent or their mortgage. 33% didn't have enough money to buy food or pay for utilities. Now, those are immediate basic needs that they can't pay for because they are going months and months and months without being able to resolve this issue. And then, of course, there are all these emotional reactions. We had 54% feeling uh, that they were more stressed. 54% also said they felt violated. And just think about how that erodes their trust in the system. Now, you have a lot of these folks who probably didn't have a lot of trust in the system in the first place, but when it has demonstrably failed them, how much trust in their government and their elected officials and the people who were supposed to be there to help them are they going to have when, you know, they're sitting back going, I can't even get the benefits that I'm entitled to, to pay my routine bills. And I'm just left out in the cold. So these, these impacts are real. So Naftali, I wanted us to establish, you know, what's actually at stake here. But, you know, we are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. That money had to go somewhere. Where did it go? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think to Eva's point, the, um, the immediate loss is really just the tip of the iceberg here. So the fraudsters uh, stole a ton of public benefits intended for people who lost their jobs or businesses that were struggling. And it's you know one thing to say intellectually they stole that money, but that money has to actually go somewhere. And uh, what the fraudsters have done is once they've taken the funds, they've tried to launder it into the financial services ecosystem in the United States. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we prevent fraud for banks, lenders, and financial institutions. And the same way that you at the ITRC have seen a huge influx of consumers uh, who are the victims of identity theft, uh, we have seen an enormous influx of uh, fraudulent applications, uh, identity theft cases, uh, trying to target the institutions that we serve. And so what is happening here is after the fraudsters have stolen funds from the public, they are trying to move them into uh, the financial system. So they're trying to open up uh, bank accounts uh, or uh, savings accounts. And um, once they get those funds, they then try to launder it further. So we see attempts of taking the money that they've gotten from unemployment insurance and uh, immediately trying to move it into uh, cryptocurrencies or put it into um, various different gambling sites as a way of laundering funds or just passing it onwards so that they can clean uh, the money um, and actually try to benefit from the funds that they've stolen. Um, so I think there's actually a, a really another issue here that hasn't really gotten very much public attention. I think the public is focused uh, rightfully on the victims of this fraud, the consumer victims. Um, I think the public is focused rightfully on the, uh, the failures in government that allowed this fraud to happen. What I think a lot of people haven't thought about, and which I think will gain more attention in the next few months, um, are some of the failures of certain financial institutions that have allowed some of that money to be uh, laundered into their uh, into their uh, institutions, into their accounts. Um, without that, the fraudsters would have had a hard time actually uh, using the money that they stole. Um, we have. These regulations, it's, they're, you know, the, I know you're very familiar with them, but for, for folks who, are, who do not follow you know, financial transactions as closely as, as uh, we do, uh, there's, it's you know, know your customer. You know, um, 
KYC regulations. Did, James, did, that, did that did those fail? James, to be quite frank here, I believe, and I'll I'll say this on the record, that the um, understanding of ninety five percent of people in our industry about uh, KYC does not extend beyond knowing that it stands for Know Your Customer. Um, I, I'm, I'm dead serious about that. I, I really mean that. And um, you know, when when you say did this fail, I would say absolutely yes. And I think one of the really the, the main reason for this is that um, the KYC regulations are treated by uh, not all institutions, but certainly by some as a box to check rather than a serious obligation. Um, I would argue that any financial institution in the United States, even aside from their legal obligations, has a moral obligation to society to stop fraud that impacts all of us. And I think that there are some that really just treat this as a box to check. And so they will deliberately use um, solutions that really are, are box checking exercises where um, it, the, the regulations indicate that there's a, uh, a part of it called the CIP rules, stands for Customer Identification Program, that says you need to ver- uh, verify the name, date of birth, SSN, and address of your customers. Um, they'll just do the most cursory glance at that and say, oh, yeah, this is a match, this is a match, this is a match, this is a match, when it may be a stolen identity or uh, a synthetic one. And I think that um, I think that there are certain institutions that need to really uh, step up their game and start taking this seriously as opposed to a, as a box-checking exercise. So, yes, I could not agree with you more. I think that um, the KYC uh, regulations, um, I don't think they've been uh, enforced to the level that um, – that they ought to. And I think that um, there are some institutions that haven't taken them as seriously as they should. You know, that said, I think the majority of the financial services industry uh, does take this seriously and is making a, a best case effort. But, you know, unfortunately, I think there are some bad apples that are not doing that. I want to put a pin in that because I have another question, but I want to get to this concept that, that Eva, I know, is passionate about. Um, and that is the role of friction in in financial transactions in particular, but really any transaction where someone's identity is at risk. And, you know, the concept of friction would be for this purpose is, you know, the steps you take to ensure somebody is who they say they are. And there's, there's always a debate about, you know, usually in an organization it's between marketing and the, and security uh, around, you know, marketing and always make it as easy as humanly possible to get this transaction done as quickly as possible and security going, but, 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 but I need to make it secure. Um, Eva, where do you see the role of friction in what we're talking about now with proving people are when they set up accounts like this? So the, the ill-gotten gains don't get washed in a legitimate fashion. You know, that was a really nice way saying I'm passionate about it. It's a really nice way of saying she's going to get on her soapbox here because I have been talking about this for years. And um, this is actually a really unusual and unique time in this conversation, because generally speaking, just about everyone I talk to in industry would say, you know, friction, bad, friction, bad. It has to be seamless. We're going to do everything we can to uh, reduce friction. And I understand that, but I also think that that's just, that it's the balance is wrong there. And so I've been encouraging all the decision makers that adding a little bit of friction actually not only does it 
clearly it's the right thing to do and it protects um, both your customers and the public on the whole. Uh, but you have a whole population of people, and I'm talking about previous identity crime victims who would be evangelists of that movement. They actually welcome a little bit of friction because they now have this visceral understanding of what that means. And, and so I've been encouraging that. But now we've shifted a little bit, and the friction is almost becoming um, unbearable. And so we just, boy, we just can't seem to strike the right balance. So we really need to work on enough friction that we're not making it easy for the thieves, but not so much that you are making it impossible for the legitimate identity credential holders to actually engage with you. And this is, we're kind of seeing this uh, with uh, the government benefits right now that they've, they've really upped their game, which is what we want them to do. But at the same time, we are getting calls from people who are saying they're the legitimate identity credential holder saying, I, I can't get authenticated. I don't have the, all of the appropriate, you know, foundational identity documents. And so we need to, industry and government need to look at their processes and make sure that they do have something available to fill in those gaps because not every person is going to be easily authenticated, especially when it comes to government. You don't get to choose your customers. And so you need to have a process that affords them to be able to be authenticated or at least some next step so that you can help them get on that path. So it's a really weird time in this conversation right now. I don't think I've encountered it in the last decade. You know, one of the ways I think about friction is actually that it essentially helps in the sort of gray areas. And so, you know, when I think about this, actually the, the better your identity verification technology um, the less times you need to use friction. So, you know, for example, um, you know, from the work that we do, uh, I would say approximately 90% of uh, attempts to open accounts for individuals, it's pretty obvious that the person is who they say they are. You know, it's they're using their own email address, using their own phone number, they've both been verified. There's no crazy um, amount of uh, velocity and you can be pretty confident this person is who they say they are. And I say, you know what, in those cases, let's reduce friction as much as possible because, this is an honest person that's just trying to open an account or uh, get benefits or, or whatever it is. Um, there are some gray areas, though. And um, in those gray areas, you know, for example, hey, um, this person, they're using an email address that we're not sure whether it belongs to them. And it looks like they may have just moved, but we're really not sure. I think that's the case where you really want to um, apply more friction uh, because it helps you to differentiate between a uh, just an honest American and a fraudster that has uh, stolen their identity or is trying to commit fraud. Um, and of course, there's the other segment, uh, the high risk segment, where it's quite obvious that it is fraud and um, you want to do friction just on the off chance that you may be wrong about that. And now the thing, the way I think about this actually is the better job you're able to do in terms of differentiating between those three categories, the category of, hey, this is clearly the person they say they are, the category of here, this is clearly fraud in that gray area of like, hey, we're not sure, um, the less friction you have to do. But certainly I think that um, I agree with Eva that um, the the government and any organization that verifies identity should be doing uh, quite a bit of friction in that gray area and that and in that red area. But ultimately, I think there's a um, you know James, I think you opened this up by saying, hey, there's a trade-off, and marketing versus security are both pushing uh, on both sides of those trade-offs. But I think you can actually make that trade-off better by having better technology that can differentiate between them. 
that kind of leads us back to where we were a minute ago when I said I want to put a pin in it. We talked about, you know, know your customer, KYC. And I, you know, look, it's pretty obvious it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Even the people, yeah. Even the people that followed it, yeah, it didn't work. Um, so what else did we learn, um, in the situation we're in and what are the other problems that have, that have emerged beyond the obvious of people who, uh, are opening accounts claiming to be people they're not? Unfortunately, and I say this as a fraud professional, I think that, um, the fraud that has been perpetrated against different states. Um, I, I wish I could say this is a super sophisticated kind of fraud and they're doing tactics that we've never seen before. And um, unfortunately, that's just not true. The, um, the fraud that we've seen impacting uh, states unemployment insurance um, has actually been, uh, I'd say, relatively basic in terms of the kinds of uh, uh, fraud attacks they're doing. It's not actually new. I, I wish I could say, hey, we're learning about new kinds of fraud vectors, but um, it, it actually has been fairly simple. And so I think one of the things that we're certainly learning is that the public sector needs to have uh, stronger defenses um, and um, you know, have those defenses match some of the defenses that we see in, you know, for example, uh, consumer lending, where they're, um, they're definitely quite a bit stronger than we've seen in government. Um, but unfortunately, I, I, this is not some kind of unprecedented, never seen before fraud vector that um, the fraudsters are exploiting. This is pretty simple uh, stuff. They stole identities, they claim to be the victims. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, the state's governments weren't, uh, weren't checking for some really basic things. So what, but what's the message for the financial institutions you work with when they, when those people show up with the money that they've, they've obtained fraudulently from these public sources, what, what, what's the message for the, for the financial institutions, for the banks and the, and the credit unions and the, uh, like that? What, 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 what is it they've learned from this? Um, well, fortunately, the ones that we serve, uh, we've been able to help them stop the um, stop the money from being uh, laundered through their accounts. Uh, but I think certainly one of the things that they learned is that, um, and I think the whole industry is learning this, is that um, even in financial products that um, the financial institution uh, doesn't stand to lose money in, it's still important to verify identities. You know, when a uh, fraudster steals someone's identity and instead of using it to apply for a loan, they instead use it to uh, open up a checking account. The financial institution doesn't really stand to lose uh, very much of any money from that. Uh, but nonetheless, there's an important uh, value to society and to the larger ecosystem of making sure that person is who they say they are, because if not, it may be used to launder ill-gotten gains. Um, so I think um, one of the lessons to the whole financial services industry is just reiterating the importance of uh, strong identity verification programs, even in cases where uh, the uh, financial uh, incentive is not immediately there. Um, Eva, uh, we're, 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 we're beginning to put all of this behind us. We're going we're gonna to analyze this for years, even though there's going to be a long tail on this. It seems like the, the initial phase is winding down. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna analyze this. We're going to understand a lot more. But that, there are things people need to be doing today to protect their identities from being vulnerable in this same way in the future? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that I think it's really important for folks to understand that what I'm about, the, the things I'm about to say really apply to general 
uh, good identity hygiene, and they definitely apply to helping you in the financial sector and not being a victim of financial identity theft. But the um, unfortunate reality is we do not have the same uniform processes available when it comes to government-related identity theft. And that needs to change. So that's something that we are working on at the ITRC. You know, you and I, James, are definitely we're beating that drum every day and and so are a lot of other folks but for your your you know general person out there and believe me you all have something worth protecting your identity credentials regardless of um you know your your financial situation they are valuable to the threat actors so you should definitely be protecting them and one of the best things that you can do is freeze your credit it really reduces your risk surface it's not terribly inconvenient. Does it take some time? Yes. And and you and you need to go visit all three of the major credit bureaus to do so. You do have to have uh, your foundational identity documents available, but it really doesn't take that much time. It's maybe 15 or 20 minutes of your time. And it prevents the bad actors from opening new lines of credit in your name without the pin. You have to have a pin. It's that extra layer of security. And then I would also say in keeping with that theme of extra layers of security, you know, use multi-factor authentication, turn it on. It's available in a lot of different places at a lot of different institutions. It just isn't mandatory. I mean, I would love to see industry step up and just say, we're making MFA mandatory. That fe- I know that feels a little bit big brother-ish as if we're not giving people choices, but let them opt out so they can have a choice. And you can say, well, you would not like to be you know, better protected against identity theft and fraud. Sure, you can opt out of this. Um, but please, by all means, people, turn on MFA. It's, it's super easy and it adds an extra layer of protection. So even if your identity credentials are out there in the wild, and even if a thief may have already have access to them and is using them, if they don't get that code, if they don't have that app on on your phone, they can't get into those accounts or open new accounts in your name. So Naftali, I'm going to give you the last word, Um, sort of same concept. We're clearly learning things. We're going to learn a lot more. And this is an ever-evolving world. Uh, that we live in with uh, cybersecurity and identity management and, and privacy. What do you, looking into your crystal ball, what do you see are the things we need to be paying attention to going forward? One of the things that I think we should be cautious of is, unfortunately, the um, public sector just gave billions and billions of dollars to fraudsters. And uh, I don't know what they're going to go do with it. You know, I know that They've been able to launder it out, but I don't know what um, what they'll actually be doing with that going forward. I'm certainly hoping that they're not going to take that and reinvest it in uh, committing new and uh, more sophisticated kinds of fraud. But I think we'll just need to watch them carefully to see what uh, you know what they do in the next couple of years. Eva Naftali, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. You can learn more about identity fraud as well as get help if you have been the victim of an identity crime by visiting the ITRC's website at idtheftcenter.org. While you're there, sign up for our emails that alert you to the latest scams, monthly data breach updates, and tips to protect your identity. Be sure and join us next week for our weekly breach breakdown podcast and next month for another episode of The Fraudian Slip. Thanks for listening.